talked to several of you here over lunch that have spent some time in Romania. Uh, one person came up and started talking to me a bit in Romanian, which I enjoyed. I'm not sure if you're all listening here, but uh, if you are, I thought maybe I should uh, share a little quote in Romanian. It goes like this. Fie omo cute mari trebuie să dorm după mâncare. Fie omo cute mic după mâncare doarmi on peak. And what that means is it doesn't matter how big the man is, after he eats, he needs to sleep a little bit. It doesn't matter how little the man is, he needs to sleep a little bit after he eats. It's just a kind of a little rhyme in Romanian. So perhaps there's some of you that are looking forward to this next hour as your nap time before you get on to the real business of volleyball later on this afternoon. Um, it's pretty easy to do after lunch, so uh, I understand that. Uh, I'll try to uh, do my part and uh, look forward to uh, continuing on here. Also, one of the uh, conversations, someone mentioned that, uh, you know, it's so important to keep our mind, our eyes on God, but sometimes it's so hard because we have so many distractions in life and we tend to focus on those things that distract us rather than focusing on God. And that's very true. I find that true in my own life. And uh, my wife and I, uh, we've needed to remind ourselves of that sometimes. Uh, one of the verses that we've chosen to kind of be a, a favorite verse or a theme verse is found in Isaiah 26, uh, verse 3, I think the reference is, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And every once in a while, we get kind of feeling bogged down or overwhelmed, and we need to remind ourselves, you know what? We're not focusing on God like we need to. We're getting distracted and looking at other things. So hopefully we can um, bring our focus back to God here again. Um, let's have a little bit of review before I uh, turn on the projector here again. Um, we were on three mountains in our last session, and uh, we talked about three aspects of God. Who can tell me what the first mountain was and what we saw there? I'll help you out a little bit. We were on Mount Sinai. What aspect of God did we learn about? God's presence. He revealed himself to his people in an earth-shaking way, literally. From there, we went to Mount Ararat, where we learned about God's promises. Very good. And then on to Mount Carmel, where we saw God's power. Okay. Now we're going to move on to a fourth mountain. And this mountain that we'd like to look at initially is not named in the Bible. It just refers to a mount, but it's the story of Elisha. And the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 6, where we see God's protection. And in this particular circumstance, in 2 Kings chapter 6, <coughs> the king of Syria was warring against Israel. He was on the offensive. He was fighting against Israel. But things weren't working out the way he intended. And uh, he called his counselors together and he said, we have a problem. He said, it doesn't matter what I do, where I go. The king of Israel is always anticipating it. He's always ready for me. He's expecting me. And it seems like someone's telling him what I'm planning to do. In fact, he says, I think there must be some traitor in our camp here 
that is going to Israel and telling them what my intentions are. And his people said, no, that's not the case at all. He said, actually, there's a man in Israel that knows what you talk about in your bedroom. They were referring to Elisha. And, uh, well, the king of Israel said, or the king of Syria said, uh, well, if that's the case, we need that man. I want you to go spy out, find out where he is, come and tell me where he is so that we can go get him. Now, I'm not sure what the king of Syria was thinking here. If, if this man knew what he was thinking in his bedchamber, well, then he knew that he was going to send people out to look for him and find him. So it's, uh, you know, he was trying to do the uh, little bit of uh, not so good logic there. But anyway, um, he was told that this man, Elisha, is in Dothan. He said, let's go get him. So he took the whole army, a great host, horses and chariots, went by night, and they completely encircled this little town where Elisha was staying. And uh, I'm guessing Elisha knew what was going on the whole time. He was probably inside his house there thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, wait to see what happens here. And in the morning, Elisha's servant got up and stepped outside their room, stepped outside the house. And what did he see but the enemy completely surrounding them? They were surrounded. No escape. Now this servant, this young man, I'm assuming he was young, I don't know. This servant obviously did not have quite the spiritual perception that Elisha had. He was alarmed. He came running back in, took, talked to his master. He said, alas, master, how shall we do in other words, what are we going to do? How are we going to get ourselves out of this situation? And Elisha's response, again, I picture this very calm. Fear not, just, just relax. He says, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And at this point, I can imagine his servant thinking or responding, no, Elisha, you didn't see what I saw. There's not more of us than them. I mean, there's a whole host. They're completely surrounding. You, you should go out and see how many of them there are. And then Elisha prayed this simple prayer. He says, Lord, open the servant's eyes so that he can really see, so that he can see the reality rather than just simply how things appear. You see, so often what we see is how things appear. But Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see reality. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain. Here we have the mountain. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. So we have this little town. I don't know how big Dothan was. The enemy completely surrounding the town. And then as I picture it, completely surrounding the enemy was a bigger army with horses and chariots of fire, which these Syrians could not see. The point is here, God's protection. God's protection was there for Elisha, and he protected them there. Um, the army, the Syrian army was smitten with blindness, and uh, there was not too much that they could do. But Elisha and the Israelites were protected. God wants to protect his children. God does protect his children. And uh, I talked earlier this morning about sometimes you might feel alone. Like you are the only one standing for what's right. 
And when you're in that circumstance, sometimes you may feel surrounded by the enemy. It doesn't matter where you look, where you go, which direction you head. The enemy is there. And you might have this little place of refuge and you step outside of that refuge and all you see is the horses and chariots, as it were, on every side of you. Maybe sometimes the odds are stacked against you to the point where you feel your situation is hopeless. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, take heart. God's protection is available. That's where Elisha's servant found himself. He felt that it was overwhelming. But there's another man I'd like to look at in this account as well that also found himself in a very similar situation. I'm referring to David. And David's son was referring or was revolting against him. And he was leading all the army against him. And when David stepped out of his house, literally, the whole nation was against him. The whole multitude was against him. So things were looking pretty helpless. And rather than fighting, David chose to avoid a conflict. And he fled. Where do you think he fled, by the way? Where else? To a mountain. He fled to a mountain. You can read the account in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to Mount Olivet. One of you mentioned that here this morning. He fled to Mount Olivet. And somewhere in the course of his departure, he wrote a beautiful psalm. And here again, he went to the mountain. Circumstances were against him. I believe David was seeking the presence of God. I think he was seeking the promises of God. I think he was seeking the power of God at this time because he needed it. And he was looking for God's protection. But in the midst of this traumatic situation, he took time to spend time with God. And he wrote out his prayer to God in a psalm. And I'm glad we have that psalm for us today. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 3. Now, probably your Bible has a little heading for this psalm. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And 2 Samuel chapter 15 is where you you find that account. So, as we're looking at God's protection here, we're looking at the example of Elisha, but also the example of David on Mount Olivet in 2 Samuel 15 and Psalm 3. Notice what David writes in this psalm. Uh, Verse 1, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Now that sounds like a pretty desperate situation. Perhaps you've referred to someone and said it seems like he's beyond hope. There's no hope for him. What David is saying here, people were saying that David's situation is so helpless that not even God is going to be able to get him out of this situation. He said, many there be which say there is no help for him in God. But David knew there was help. David knew there was protection available. We have that little word in there, selah, which basically means stop. It's a pause. Think about that. Many there be which say there is no help for him in God. Stop. Think about that. Imagine what that would be like. Not even 
God could help him. But David knew that God was his protector. He goes on to say, but thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. You see, a shield is used for protection. God was David's protection. But there's something else about a shield that I would like to point out here. A shield is used for protection, but a shield is also used for identification. Now, back in hundreds of years ago, when you see some of these middle-aged soldiers covered in armor from head to toe, you would meet a soldier. You could not recognize him by looking at him who he was. So you would look at his shield, and on his shield, he carried the identification of his earthly lord, who he was fighting for. And that shield told you who this man was, whether it was a friend or an enemy. And if you were a soldier and you lost your shield, you lost your identification, you lost your identity, you were in a pretty dangerous situation because you might meet a friend, he may not recognize you as a friend, and you may be his target. So a shield was a very important aspect of identification. Even today, a lot of companies use a shield in their logo or somewhere just as, a, as an identification. And David was saying here, Lord, you are my shield. You are my source of protection. But Lord, not only that, you are my identity. In you, I find my identity. And I think what he was saying, it doesn't matter what the world says about me. It doesn't matter if people say there's no hope for me in God because I don't place my identity in what people say. I place my identity in you and in what you say. I know that you are my source of protection. David goes on to say, you're the lifter up of my head. I just picture a little boy, maybe he's bullied by his playmates. He comes running, he feels singled out, alone and abused, so he runs to his dad. His dad reaches down, puts his hand under his chin, says, look at me, son. That's what God wants to do. Look at me, son. I am your identity. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. You're outnumbered. Run to me. We can gaze into his eye. Fear not, my child. Then rest in the beauty of his promises. Even as David did when he was running for his life. At the end of this passage, he says, I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. So if you feel overwhelmed by circumstances, look to God as your identity. Find your identity in him and look to God as your shield, your protection. I'd like to move on. There's another mountain. I'm not sure if this mountain was mentioned this morning. I'm going to go now to Genesis chapter 22, Mount Moriah. Who can tell me what took place on Mount Moriah? Who went to Mount Moriah? Abraham. Who went with him? His son Isaac. And a very touching story took place on Mount Moriah. What aspect of God's character might we find in Mount Moriah? Any ideas there? God's what? 
morning a number of you were thinking it, you just didn't want to say it. So what's, what are you thinking? God's provision, thank you. God's provision, Mount Moriah, Genesis chapter 22. Abraham was going, he knew what he was being asked to do. God had asked him to offer his son. And there's few stories in the Bible that I find more touching than this one. And maybe the reason I find it touching is because I find myself in that place over and over again where I just simply need to lay something on the altar, something that I want to hang on to, something that I want to keep, something that I think belongs to me. But God says, no, you need to surrender that. And when Abraham came to that moment of surrender, God's provision was made available. God had already provided something there for him. Now, perhaps laying a family member on the altar and preparing to slay him seems so extreme that it's hard for you to identify with. You know, that, that seems kind of out, of out of our picture. And maybe it's the trivial things that we actually struggle with the most, the little things in life. And sometimes it's easier to identify with the little things than it is the big things. I have a story that... Um, I'm going to share to you, I picked up somewhere, I think, an email forward, and uh, you may have read it before. But this story, I think, identifies for us in a way that we can relate to what Abraham needed to do and what God was waiting to do all the time. It's about a little girl, and I'll, I'll relate the story to you. The cheerful girl with bouncy golden curls, was almost five years old. She was waiting with her mother at the checkout stand when she saw them. A circle of glistening white imitation pearls in a pink foil box. Oh, please, Mommy, can I have them? Please, Mommy, please. Quickly, the mother picked up the little foil box, looked at the back of it, and then looked back into the pleading blue eyes of her little girl's upturned face. A dollar and 95 cents. That's almost two dollars. If you really want them, I'll think of some extra chores for you to do. And in no time, you can save enough money to buy them for yourself. Your birthday is only a week away and you might get another crisp dollar bill from grandma. As soon as Jenny got home, she emptied her penny bank and counted out 17 pennies. After dinner, she did more than her share of chores, and she went to the neighbor and asked Mr. Mc Mrs. McJames if she could pull dandelions from her yard for 10 cents. On her birthday, Grandma did give her another new dollar bill, and at last she had enough money to buy her necklace. Jenny loved those pearls. They made her feel dressed up and grown up. She wore them everywhere, Sunday school, kindergarten, even to bed. The only time she took them off was when she had a bubble bath because mother said if they got wet, they might make her neck turn green. Jenny had a very loving daddy, and every night when she was ready for bed, he would stop whatever he was doing and come upstairs to read her a story. One night when he finished the story, he asked Jenny, Jenny, do you love me? Oh, daddy, you know I love you. Would you... Give me your pearls? Oh, Daddy, not my pearls, but I'll give you Princess, the white horse from my collection, the one with the pink tail, remember, Daddy? The one you gave me, she's my favorite. Oh, that's okay, honey. Daddy loves you, good night. And he brushed her cheek with a kiss. 
About a week later, after the story time, Jenny's daddy asked again, Do you love me, Jenny? Yes, daddy, you know I love you. Would you give me your pearls? Oh, daddy, not my pearls. But you can have my dolly, the brand new one I got for my birthday. She's so beautiful, and you can have the little yellow blanket that matches her sleeper. Ah, oh, that's okay. You sleep good. God bless you, little one. Daddy loves you. And as always, he brushed her cheek with a gentle kiss. A few nights later, when her daddy came in, Jenny was sitting on her bed with her legs crossed Indian style. As he came close, he noticed her chin was trembling and one silent tear rolled down her cheek. What is it, Jenny? What's the matter? Jenny didn't say anything, but lifted her little hand up to her daddy. And when she opened it, there was the pearl necklace. With a little quiver, she finally said, Here, Daddy, it's for you. With tears gathering in his own eyes, Jenny's kind daddy reached out with one hand to take the dime store necklace. And with the other, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet case with a strand of genuine pearls and gave them to Jenny. He had them all along. He was just waiting for her to give up the dime store stuff so he could give her the genuine treasure. Jenny's father is like our Heavenly Father. He is waiting for us to give up our dime store treasures and seek him first so that he can fling open the windows of heaven and pour out the blessings of his provision If you want to experience God's provision this morning, there's a question that we need to ask this afternoon. There's a question that we need to ask. What am I hanging on to? What is it that I do not want to give to God? You see, when Abraham was back there in Mount Moriah, God's provision was tangled back there in the bushes all along. But Abraham had no idea until he came to the moment where it was obvious that he was willing to give the most precious thing he had to God. And that was when God handed him his provisions. What are you hanging on to? What am I hanging on to? Maybe we are hanging on to our dreams for the future. That's what Abraham was hanging on to. All of his dreams were focused in his son. If he lost his son, his dreams were gone. He was hanging on to his dreams for the future. Maybe you're hanging on to something that gives you a sense of security. Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it's a pleasure. Maybe it's something that gives you a, a sense of purpose. What shield are you carrying? We all are carrying a shield. Remember I said a shield represents our identity. Let's face it, you're gathered together here with youth. There's some youth here you know quite well. There's some youth here you don't know quite well. And every one of you is probably at least a little bit concerned about what does everyone else think about me? What impression am I making? It's your identity. It's what people think of you. And you see, we carry a shield in front of our face, in front of our, in front of our face, in front of ourselves. And on that shield, we try to put a certain identity. It's what we want people to think about us. So what shield are you carrying? 
today? Is it a shield that says best athlete, best volleyball player? Is it a shield that says best singer? Driver of the nicest car? Most successful hunter? Most popular person? I don't know what the shield is. But my question is, are you willing to take that shield and place it on the altar of Jesus Christ and just give up your identity? The things that you were hanging on to to identify yourself, just take it off and lay it down and allow God to give you a shield that says, God is my Lord written on it. I serve God. My identity is God. It doesn't matter if I can't even hit a volleyball over net. It doesn't matter if I drive a rust bucket that looks like it won't make it five miles down the road. It doesn't matter all these other things. What matters is that I belong to God. That is where I find my identity. Maybe you're holding on to some grudge. Someone offended you. Someone hurt you. And it's just hard to lay that aside. And you keep hanging on to that. You're not willing to place your hurt on the altar. But until you are, until you are willing, you will not be able to experience all that God is wanting to provide for you. It's not easy to lay things on the altar. It's not easy to lay aside the things that are important to us. It is a struggle. Sometimes it makes us cringe. Do you think it was a struggle for Abraham? I'm guessing that moment on Mount Moriah was perhaps the most difficult moment of his life. He probably felt that God was just ripping his life apart. And yet he was willing to sacrifice that. Let's not hang on to our dime store pearls. The promise is found in Genesis 22, verse 8. God will provide. God will provide himself. God's provision is all your need. He will provide for you. Let's move on to the sixth point. Before we do that, uh, it's afternoon, it's after dinner. Let's just stand up a little bit. Uh, move your arms around, move your shoulders around, move your feet around a little bit. Let's sing, uh, let's sing a verse of that chorus. Uh, just, just comes to my mind here in the spur of the moment. I think I can get through the words. Jesus Christ has made to me all I need. You know that song? You know it? Okay, let's, uh, let's sing a verse of that, see if we can get it through it, and then sit down again. Jesus Christ is made to me all I need, all I need. He alone is all my plea. He is all I need. Wisdom, righteousness, and power, holiness forevermore. My redemption full and sure. He is all Okay, thank you. You may sit down again.
Ready to move on now to our sixth mountain. And this is Mount Horeb, and I found it interesting that someone mentioned that Bible this morning. It's not a name that, or that someone mentioned that uh, mountain this morning. It's not a name that we hear as often as some of the other mountain names. Um, who can tell me who was on Mount Horeb? Do you know anything about Mount Horeb? Any ideas? Remember, you're not worried about your identity, so if you're wrong and you're embarrassed, it doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> Moses? Was it Moses? That was a question. Was it Moses? Okay, Moses was on Mount Horeb. He is one of them. There are actually several people. It was mentioned several times. But I'd like to talk about Moses on Mount Horeb when he was out there on the backside of the desert. You find it in Exodus chapter 3. And God spoke to Moses. It's where Moses saw the burning bush. Okay, I'm giving you some details to lead you up here. What do you think we see about God's characteristic on Mount Horeb? God's what? Has to do with God's call, okay? So what's another word we could use that starts with P? God's... God's plan? That would be a good one. It's not the one I picked. God's purpose is the word that I chose. Point six, God's purpose, Mount Horeb. And uh, several passages we're pulling that from is uh, Exodus chapter 3 and also uh, may refer to uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. So Moses grew up in Egypt. He ended up running to the desert spent some time there, and he met God on Mount Horeb. As you look at your life, do you feel fulfilled, or do you feel that maybe there's something missing in your life that you haven't quite grasped a hold of yet? There's maybe something more, something that you haven't quite attained. Maybe God has something more for you that you haven't fulfilled yet at this point. Maybe there's a certain feeling of emptiness or meaningless, maybe you wonder, well, am I missing God's plan for my life? Does he have something for me that I don't know about? Maybe, maybe you feel like you blew it. You had an opportunity and you blew it and you missed, you missed the chance. The mistakes that you made knocked you so far off course that there's no hope for you. Do you think maybe Moses felt that way? Moses had a lot of opportunity. He grew up in Egypt. Not only did he grow up in Egypt, he grew up in the palace. He, he had the, the inside connections. And he blew it. He killed a man. Probably a spur of the moment of anger. He killed a man. And pretty soon he fled for his life. Forty years spending out in the wilderness. And I wonder, I wonder how many times in those 40 years Moses was thinking, if only, if only I wouldn't have blown it, if only I wouldn't have allowed my anger to get the best of me, if only I wouldn't have killed that man. I wonder, I wonder what I could have done with my life. I wonder what I could have accomplished. I wonder what God's real purpose for my life was. But no, I blew it. Here I am. It all happened so quickly. But I ended up out here 
No company except for these old sheep that I watch day after day. How often did he think about his people back there in Egypt? But here he was, and it seemed like the only purpose that he had in life was making sure that these four-legged critters had enough to eat and that they weren't eaten by other four-legged critters. Day after day after day, that's all he did. Until one day, something got Moses' attention. He saw this bush that was burning. And we often hear about the message about the burning bush speaking to Moses. But you know what? The burning bush, burning bush did not speak to Moses. He did not get a message from the bush. That was just something that God used to get his attention. And maybe there's an event in your life that God wants to use to get your attention so that you can actually hear what he has to say and what his purpose is for you. We're so busy with the events in life. Do we take time to turn aside and listen to what God's message for us is? God had a purpose for Moses. He didn't know anything about it up until this point. But it was a purpose that far exceeded, I think, any of his expectations or any of his desires. And you know, God has a purpose for your life. Maybe you have a feeling as to what that purpose may be. But I have a feeling that God has a whole lot more in mind for you than what you ever thought about. Because God tends to reveal to that, that to us moment by moment. And his call to us today is to turn aside, meet him on the mountain, meet him on Mount Horeb, and listen to what he has to say. Listen to his purpose for your life. Now, Elijah was another man who met God at the same place on Mount Horeb. I find that interesting. After his experience on Mount Carmel, he went back into the city, and there he was threatened by Jezebel, and he ran for his life. He was discouraged. He was getting out of there. And he, too, was resisting God. He was discouraged. He told God, I've done everything I can do. I don't have any strength left in me. I am finished. It's over. The whole, God, the whole nation wants to kill me. They're rejecting you. I'm as good as a dead man. I may as well be dead. It's time to hang it up. What was God's message? I'm not finished with you yet. I still have work. I still have a purpose for your life. I still have something for you to do. Moses, or Elijah left that mountain, and he did go back to work with a new vision. The mount of God is where he wants to reveal his purpose for you. I find it interesting that in both Exodus and in the example in Kings, both of these men were on Mount Horeb, and in both scriptures it refers to it as the Mount of God. Horeb, the Mount of God. I don't know what it was about that mountain that made it the Mount of God, except that these men met God there. Seek God and seek his purpose for your life. I had a little bookmark once. I don't know what happened to it. But on this bookmark, there was a picture. It was a picture of a, of a road, like similar to the one out front here. And there were double yellow lines down the middle of the road. And right in the middle of the road, there was a dead carcass. I think it was an opossum or something that had been lying on the road when the paint crew went through. And these yellow lines went right up over the carcass of that 
possum and down the other side and continued on. And at the bottom of the bookmark were three words, not my job. In other words, it was not the job of the driver of that truck to stop and get out and remove dead carcasses from the road. If they were in the way, he just painted his lines over them and continued going on. That wasn't a part of his job description, to remove road kills from the road. Sometimes it's pretty easy for us to say, it's not my job. That's not what I've been asked to do. Some years ago, I was uh, in the backyard of my wife's uh, parents' place, and standing there just talking, I don't remember what the occasion was, and uh, my brother-in-law was standing next to me and some other people, and the adjoining property, I had another brother-in-law brother that lived next door, and they were getting ready for some kind of a backyard gathering, and they had a campfire, cook fire, going in the backyard. So they were doing their thing, we were here in the yard doing our thing, and uh, I just happened to look up and looked over at my brother-in-law's yard, and I noticed his son, who was maybe three or four years old at the time, carrying this gas can that was almost too heavy for him to carry straight towards the fire. Now, I don't know what transpired before this. Apparently, sometime he had seen someone use gasoline to start a fire and was impressed with what happened. But here he was with this gas can headed straight towards the fire. And I glanced up and I looked over there and I said, hmm, looks like this could get interesting, but that's not my job. Do you think that's what I said? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what my expression was, but I said something and my brother-in-law that was beside me took off running. I took off running and about that time, this little boy's dad came bursting out of the house, all converging on this young boy. He didn't have a chance. I mean, <laughs> these three men, there was no way he was making it to that fire. But now, what do we do in real life when we see people headed towards a fire while we're standing in our backyard having parties? We look up, hmm, well, that's sad, but... That's not my job. I'll let someone else take care of it. I hope his dad sees it before he gets to the fire. It's pretty easy for us to say, it's not my job. And that was even Moses' response. And that was even Elijah's response when they met God on the, on the mountain and God revealed his purpose, his plan to them, what he wanted them to do. Their initial response was, I'm sorry, God, it's not my job. Send Aaron, send somebody else. I've done my part. You see, this world is full of men and women who are rushing straight towards the fire. They're rushing towards disaster. They're rushing towards death. And we're standing in our position of spiritual security and watching them to go and say, why doesn't somebody stop them? Why doesn't somebody do something when God is looking at you and saying, my child, I have a purpose for your life. I want you to go out there and interact with these people. What is your purpose in life? God wants to meet you on the mountain and give you his purpose. Now, I'd like to go back to Mount Moriah 
again. Back to Abraham. We looked at what Abraham needed to give up when he was on Mount Moriah in order for him to experience God's provision. But let's look at it now from the perspective of Isaac, his son. Now, Abraham, as you know, was already 100 years old when Isaac was born. And at this point, Isaac was perhaps your age, perhaps a teenager. We don't know exactly how old. He may have been 15 years old, may have been a few years older. If he was 15, that meant that Abraham would have been 115 years old. Now, how many of you 15-year-olds think that if you were to have a wrestling match with a 115-year-old man, he would win? Probably not very likely. Abraham obviously still had quite a bit of strength left at this point in his life. But the point I am making is, I do not think Isaac was physically forced to take that position on the altar. He was a young man in his strength. He gave up his life. He, even perhaps more than Abraham, showed what surrender means in that situation. I believe he could have escaped if he wanted to, but the Bible tells us that Abraham bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. I think in this case, Isaac is an illustration of total surrender. He gave up every dream he had for life. He gave up his goals. He gave up his identity. I mean, imagine that. All your friends saying, he left a 115-year-old man. Time up and name on the altar. That didn't matter. He gave up his identity. Today, you are in the position of Isaac. You have the power to decide. God is not going to manhandle you. God is not going to place you in the altar. He is waiting for you to sacrifice yourself, to give yourself up. Are you willing to express that commitment? The decision is up to you. God is not forcing anything from you. Are you willing to surrender to him? Have you met God today on the mountain? Are you experiencing his presence? Has he given you his promises? Keep seeking him. Seek his promises. Seek his power. Allow his power to touch your life. Look to God for protection, not your identity, not what other people think of you. Look to God for protection. Look to him for provision. Allow him to re reveal his purpose for your life. May God bless you.